Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. You're listening to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Green. Good evening, sir. Good evening, sir. <laughs> I feel like we're administering a baseline test right now. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm feeling, feeling good about this tonight. It's kind of an old school Shoulder of Orion episode. We're obviously in the middle of an ongoing series on artificial intelligence. Newsflash, if, if you haven't been listening lately. Um, but we're taking a little break from that tonight to do kind of an old school uh, Jamie and Patrick unblock, you know, unlocking the philosophical depths of something small but impactful within Blade Runner and talking about two pieces of technology that um, I think say quite a lot about the world in which they inhabit. But you know what also says a lot about the world in which we inhabit, what? Jamie? Our patrons. Oh, true, true. <laughs> we got some new patrons to give a shout out to. And I also want to say, stay tuned, everybody, to the end of the episode. I'm going to do a good old-fashioned read-off of all 85 of our active patrons. Uh, so if you haven't heard your name in a while, buckle up. I'm going to probably mispronounce it, but it's going to be there. But a special a special thank you to our newest patrons, Eric Gordon, Natasha Blockoff, and Nolan Eller. Uh, all of whom have joined in the last few weeks. We are so grateful. We got a wonderful message from Eric Gordon that we'll talk about on our other show. Um, but, you know, we are so happy to have you here, and you are helping us in so many different ways with things that you don't even know about yet, but which you will be knowing about very soon, and you might even be able to wear around. Yes, yes. I'm going to Natasha block off. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm excited to unveil the T-shirt that we had made for the celebrating the 40th anniversary. Um, that's coming in the next week or so um, before you leave for vacation. Um, yeah, yeah. But we are here to talk about the VK test, the Voight Kampf test from Blade Runner, and the baseline test from Blade Runner 2049. And this we felt like is going to sit nicely in our series on artificial intelligence and kind of because it kind of accents that it 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 is a an arm of artificial intelligence. So it's going to be fun to see where this conversation goes. It is going to be fun. I guess you're right. This is technically still part of our AI ongoing series. And it's kind of part of our 40th anniversary. Co- you know, you, you kind of stretch it to be part of our 40th anniversary coverage as well. But, um, you know, when Dan was on the show, we did one or two of these tech spotlight episodes. We did one on the spinner, and I think we did one on the Esper. And if we didn't do the one on the Esper, we had been planning on doing it. But um, they were nice opportunities to talk about Blade Runner as like a snapshot of how technology functions in that world. And because it's designed for that world, like what does it say about the world that designed it? Like I was saying earlier. So I guess starting off tonight, the VK test, the Voight-Kampff test is um, one of those just iconic visual cues from Blade Runner, you know, from the beautiful air bladder rising and falling to the Oculus with the eye footage in it. 
to Leon's incredible introduction in the beginning of the movie, shooting Holden, to the famous Rachel test that comes shortly thereafter. It's uh, it's it's really one of the signature visual motifs right up there with Deckard's blaster and the Tyrell period, you know, period, <laughs> the Tyrell pyramid. <laughs> um, and I think that uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. One of them, obviously, is Sid Mead, who is the common denominator be- behind most of the things that I just talked about and did such beautiful visual work on it. But I also think part of it is because it talks – it gives us language to talk about empathy in a really interesting way. So, of course, it's in the novel, for one thing. So, we have that as part of the backbone, although it's actually spelled differently. There's no H – and Voight in the novel. Um, but it also is in the comics, and we get to see a glimpse into it in Blade Runner Origins number 12. We see uh, the first time that it was used by Blade Runners. And um, these are, of course, canon. You know, uh, they it's being produced with Alcon, you know, their involvement. So it actually does count for the story. So it's worth pointing out that the the initial instance of the Voight Kampf in the, you know, filmic world and comic world of Blade Runner was actually... Cal Moreau, who was the central character, he's sort of the the Ur um, Blade Runner figure in the Origins comic, asks an engineer to get a you know an empathy tester machine not to find replicants but to test Blade Runners. So actually, using a Voight Kampf test essentially as the baseline test ends up being used in twenty forty nine. The initial reason in the comic series that they invented it for this was to see if Blade Runner applicants were going to be able to, to deal, you know, with removing themselves empathetically from the job that they had. Because the idea being, if you're too empathetic, if you feel too much for the beings that you're hunting down, you're going to be a really bad Blade Runner. Um, so it's interesting that then by the time we get to the movie, it's really shifted to a hunting mechanism. It's shifted to, you know, separating the wheat from the chaff. But in this case, the wheat being replicants from the chaff being the humans that they're able to be disguised as. So it's an interesting kind of window into how that technology evolved, I think. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's also very a bit of a scary piece of technology because, like Rachel says in the original film, you ever taken that test yourself? Have you ever made a mistake? Um, because if they make a mistake, they could kill a person, a real person. So it's it's a device where people are fully dependent on it being truthful or being accurate and it working properly. If not, I mean, th- there's already that the the moral discussion about retiring, even the name retire of replicants because you're essentially killing them you're killing them but this machine is essentially it's almost like a um it reminds me a little bit of the um so when people used to be killed by um lethal injection there'd be these machines that you'd see like pressed down on um and it started come down really 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 slowly and some of this some of the VK machine reminds me of that where it's slow moving, but it's not, it's a cool thing, but again, it's this terrifying thing because it could mean your death. It could mean your early retirement or whatever. It's this, again, it's this tech that we think, Oh, this is really cool. I mean, I've been looking for a, to buy a a life-size version of it, but it's a really insidious piece of equipment. 
It is, and it is really threatening. The visual design of it, not only is it threatening for narrative purposes, but the way it breathes and the way it stares in your eyes is really uh, interesting. I want to read a little uh, glimpse from the Blade Runner press kit that talks about why it was designed that way, if that's all right. So the press kit says... <clears throat> A very advanced form of lie detector that measures contractions of the iris muscle in the presence of invisible airborne particles emitted from the body. The bellows were designed for the latter function and give the machine the menacing air of a sinister insect. The Voikampf is used primarily by Blade Runners to determine if a suspect is truly human by measuring the degree of his empathic response through carefully worded questions and statements. So... It's not only this thing that's trying to figure out if you're human, which is, I think, is a question most people with any degree of existential uncertainty already are kind of afraid of being asked themselves, right? Because, like, we all have this deep-rooted worry that, you know, we're not who we think we are, not necessarily that we're a replicant, but that, like, you know, we're not who the world perceives us to be, that we're imposters in our own skin, or that we're going to be found out for not being as capable, you know, as we think we are. So it kind of plays on that a little bit, but it does it in a way that feels like just incredibly personal like it's breathing the same air that you're breathing and it's literally doing that to test it because not only is it you know testing things like the contractions of the pupil you know dilations and things that we hear about from tyrell but it's also measuring the the invisible aura around us that we're putting out into the world and it does it by breathing it's also, of course, deployed primarily in this universe by Blade Runners. So they're already hunting and they're already like, you know, in, we have they're vested with tremendous authority and a license to murder. So all of that, I think, comes together to make it really impactful. It also, um, because it feels organic to me, is really interesting. And I, I'm bringing that up because... Blade Runner, of course, does away with a lot of the conventions of science of science fiction that we, you know, would have expected. So, for example, the replicants aren't robots with smoke coming out and you know glowing eyes, right? Like that. That in itself, uh, they have glowing eyes. <laughs> they have reflective retinas. Yes. Which, yeah, that counts. Okay, fine. Yeah, but you know, they, they don't look. They don't look robotic, right? Mm -hmm. Um. Deckard's blaster doesn't fire lasers. This is actually something, uh, if, if, if those of you who are listening to this have read Future Noir, which I kind of assume everybody listening to this podcast has at this point. If you haven't, uh, it's Paul Salmon's book. He's a great friend of ours. It's like the def not only the definitive Blade Runner book, but one of the definitive pieces of film, you know, research and journalism out there. In Future Noir, there's a, when he talks about Leon's Voight-Kampf test in the beginning of the film, um, you know, he talks about how initially they were considering this idea of having lasers come out of the pistols, like, you know, that you see in the beginning of the movie, uh, and throughout, so that Deckard would be, you know, would be shooting lasers. And they, they all felt like that was already a cliche, especially, you know, a few years after Star Wars and after Buck Rogers and after all these things that had laser pistols. So they were going to do black lasers for it. So the idea being that it was like shooting these vacuum things that would suck all the light from the ambient environment and they tried it out it didn't quite work so they didn't go with it but that's another example of their bucking convention by not giving us what we think of with a traditional science fiction right even the spinners for example when they're flying they're not like you know they're not the jetsons jet cars like they they, they really feel like 
you know, breaking down very heavy pieces of machinery that are utilitarian. So the Voikov machine is interesting because in some ways it's almost steampunk, right? Like it, it has this aesthetic that feels very, not necessarily science fiction, but very filmic. It feels like something we've, we've seen before in some ways, right? Even the armature of it, it looks like, you know, a microscope. We, we, we can see it as like an object that we can recognize. But what's cool about it and about something like the Esper is that the way it functions is still completely science fictional. It's still completely, you know, out of the realm of something that we actually have in our world. We have the polygraph, obviously, which does something similar in that it you know measures electrical conductivity on the skin or whatever you know we have some things like that we have the Turing test which i think i brought up on our previous episode um you know where the idea with artificial intelligence being indistinguishable from people would be if you could pass a test on one side of a wall you know passing notes and not know if you're passing notes to a person or a robot so like there's elements of it that we've seen before, but the way it comes together in Blade Runner is is wholly original, I think, and is a big key to why it feels uh, so believable, I think, to us. You're in a desert, walking along in the sand, when all of a sudden... Is this the test now? Yes. You're in a desert, walking along in the sand, when all of a sudden you look... What one? What? What desert? It doesn't make any difference what desert is completely hypothetical. But how come I'd be there? Maybe you're fed up. Maybe you want to be by yourself. Who knows? You look down and you see a tortoise, Leon. It's crawling towards you. Tortoise? What's that? You know what a turtle is? Of course. Same thing. Never seen a turtle. But I understand what you mean. You reach down, you flip the tortoise over on its back, Leon. Do you make up these questions, Mr. Holden? Or do they write them down for you? Tortoise lays on its back, its belly baking in the hot sun, beating its legs, trying to turn itself over, but it can't. Not without your help. But you're not helping. What do you mean I'm not helping? The believability is important um, that they would rely on a machine to tell them who is real and who isn't. Um, And as we've been doing in the past few episodes, relating it to the world that we're living in now... We live with versions of that. Whether you're going to go and apply for a job, you're going to get a, and oftentimes you'll get a uh, automated response and they'll ask you a series of questions before they move you on to the next level. They want you to answer those questions algorithmically. They want an aggregate to tell them that you're a good enough person for them to give more time to, essentially. Um, and that's weird, too, and it feels very inhuman. Um, the goal, of course, with the tech that we live with today is to make our lives easier. Again, this is a, a common thing that we've been talking about, why why AI is, is um, produced, why AI in its small form is produced, or, or why robots are produced to help us do things, to help us get things done so we can scan our groceries faster. We don't have to wait in line for 40 minutes, even though it took us five minutes to go shopping or whatever. Um, so I think the VK machine is acting very similarly, very, very similar in terms of it's just this thing to help us tell who's real and who isn't. What's odd about it, the the dichotomy about it is, and correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like the VK machine is there to see if the replicate you're talking to has empathy Um, because that's not, you know, what they were built with or manufactured with or whatever. It's not a part of who they are. Um, So the empathy thing is what separates them from us. But at the same time, using that machine, 
on someone is very unempathetic. That's the word. It's not. It's a very cold, calculating way to find out the humanity of someone or not. So it's this strange thing where they're being the person asking the questions has a series of questions, research to get a specific response, but. That whole process is very cold and distant feeling, and um, you feel like you're talking to a robot almost. The machine's going, it's you know, you see the bladder breathing up and down, and you have the little eyepiece and your all the screens. It's a scary process. The machine is doing what it's also looking for in replicants, and I think that that's very interesting. Where and again, today, when we come up as as a corporation comes up, up with or w- whatever business, they come up with a way to make their lives easier. What actually ends up happening is they start losing little bits of their empathy. But under the guise of and maybe not, maybe even it's not a guise. It's the reality of them trying to streamline their 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 way of doing business, their way of hiring people uh, so that they make more money. So maybe they can pay people more, but they start losing their bits of their humanity along the way. Yeah, it's like a tool for removal. You know, it, it's almost like the, it, you know, we go always go back to the banality of evil thing. You know, if a, if a replicant is sitting across from a Blade Runner, it's not the Blade Runner's fault if the Blade Runner retires them. It's the VK test giving them that data, right? Um, I think there's another layer to this where, not to get into the Decarap conversation, but if the people administering the test are also replicants, you know, that presents a whole, you know, other interesting thing in that you would have, you know, a replicant talking to a replicant using this barrier created by humans between them to measure one against the other. And it's also, I think, worth thinking through why empathy is the deciding factor. Like, is that just because they were, like you said, not coded with it? Like, it wasn't part of their manufacturing process or however that comes about? Or is it because in the world of Blade Runner, they've decided somehow that empathy is what makes us human and what makes us special? I think if we look back at Philip K. Dick, obviously, empathy is a huge part of that book, and we have entire movements based on it, right? And technology that is supposed to connect us to each other and, you know, let us feel things together. So empathy was like very much in the source material when when Hampton and company were putting this together. And it's interesting that one of the ways that it came out ultimately in the book was as this this the, the way that the void conf is, is really used which is really legitimately menacing so yeah you're absolutely right it's like taking the the least empathetic approach to interrogating somebody about their own empathetic responses their own blush response i think it's also worth comparing it to real pieces of technology that we interact with not only like what you were talking about with questionnaires and banking and things like that but even with more prosaic things like um like a polygraph like i was bringing up earlier right because that kind of is doing the same thing although it's not looking for empathy it's looking for excited like excitability like if, if you have an excited response to something then i don't know some something over half percent of the time 50 percent of the time it means you're lying although that's not even admissible in court anymore so and again that's that's another way for so in say we're going back to 1992 you know polygraphs are everywhere it's kind of earlier in the dna you know phase and um polygraphs are really still something people are leaning on and you would have a suspect let's just say it's you know a a young urban kid in new york who has been accused of doing something and they're super nervous 
because they are in a setting that is designed to make them nervous because they know they can't get out, right? And they have, you know, an older cop administering this test to them along with like a specialist who's holding the kit and asking them questions that are specifically threatening like the the i don't know if you've ever heard have you i'm sure you have because you watch a lot of these documentaries too but like actual interrogations that lead to polygraph yeah. results yeah. the types of questions they ask are they're really you know it's like why were you in her room that night did are you, you kill did her did you not kill her yeah, right yeah. very very um direct so like the types of questions that are asked are deliberately stress-inducing, which, of course, would lead to convictions. That's ultimately what they're there to do for all the you know good law enforcement officers out there. And there are many, I know many of them, who are actually there for justice, for families. There's also a lot of people who use things like that just to get a conviction and to get somebody put away and to be able to like clear it off their docket. Um, similarly, I think in the world of Blade Runner, you have this tool that the types of questions that are cross-referenced, right, that get asked are, like, very disorienting. Um, you know, Leon, of course, gets asked about a turtle, right? So, like, that's another example of he so he doesn't know what it is because he's which of course makes sense because we're in a time where there are no turtles or tortoises to flip over like nobody knows what that is anymore so he's already kind of thrown off about that um and then he's being asked what he would do if something were to happen to this animal and so it's like the logical gap that even a human would have in the world of blade runner los angeles 2019 that's also like a huge distance because you have to imagine what that would be like and then imagine yourself in that response and then you have to imagine what they want you to be saying and say something that does not ping this blush response machine because the very act of thinking about those things would make it seem like you were having some kind of an emotional reaction to it so it's like you're saying it's really kind of set up to take people down to take replicants down but it does so in a way that feels bureaucratized and removed and sanitized and feels like if this were in a court of law which i'm sure the, the yeah, termination and the retirement of replicants was not even adjudicated because i don't think they had any rights in the first place in this society but say it were it'd be really easy for holden for example to say well he didn't know what to do with the turtle question that was you know one of seven things that he got wrong uh, it indicates that he does have empathy, and because he has empathy, then ergo, he's too much like we are, ergo, he must be killed because he's a liability, which also in itself confuses me a lot because I guess what's the what's the problem with that, right? It's one of those things where uh, thinking about Holden or anyone else using the VK, they could just say, hey, man, it's just what the machine says. Uh, you know, they can kind of get rid of guilt even though they are the ones making the call. In our audio drama Gethsemane, there's a scene at the end with a VK. And it was really up to the Blade Runner at that point if they wanted to let them pass. Yes, the machine, I mean, maybe the most of the machines are being patched into networks and all of that information is being sent on. It's possible, very possible. Um, but with instances like uh, Rachel, it didn't seem, unless they're, radio controlled which again not radio controlled but like they have servers and rem um what do you call those things um networks uh like networks uh, but uh uh 
modems. So if they have internal modems or whatever, you know, whatever. So they're still just sending all that information back to network or back to the police station, essentially. So they could maybe uh, a Blade Runner could let someone off if they felt bad enough. But you also don't know if they did and the information's being sent back. They could be in a whole world of trouble for doing that. Um, so the the VK test is this interim character in some ways making these calculated decisions about the worth of people and um it's really frightening but again i really feel like we are living in the beginnings of that we are living in and even for instance in china there's a whole social system like if you aren't scoring high enough on the social system you can't take a plane you can't fly anywhere you can't fly it's out called of the like country. social social credits or something right? yeah it's just yeah. horrific and terrifying and i don't know why you would even you know subject people to that but that's what they do and that's i mean i don't know how widespread it is i don't know if it's in rural towns i don't know if it's just in big cities i don't really know but that's a version of what the vk is doing it's saying well are you good enough will you pass this and if you're not things aren't going to end well for you. Uh, but conversely, then you have the most iconic scene with Rachel. And he's asked, you know, he said, I think at the end he goes, 130 questions cross-referenced. Is 130 or something like that? Is it 30 or 130? Is it 30? I thought he said 100 and something cross-reference. I think he said... Okay, I don't know. Um, so it took him a long time to discover um, if she was a replicant because she was showing empathy. Um so the machine wasn't, I mean, it worked eventually, but mostly it didn't work. Mostly he would have been like, and it's kind of surprising that they didn't even write it in there having Decker say, oh, this isn't working. I don't, she's not a replicant. And and then maybe you see Tyrell say, just keep going. Let's just see where this takes us. But you don't see that. And then eventually um, he discovers that she's a replicant. And then he has that conversation with Tyrell about her. Um, but it was they were wholly reliant upon this machine to do its job, um, and they, the machine almost becomes its, its own soldier as well. And I know we'll get to it eventually, but the the baseline test is its natural ancestor or its natural descendant. Just about that Rachel test. There's, and there's many reasons why that's also iconic, but it's also a pretty rare instance of humor in Blade Runner, right? With her question about is this to test whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian, you know, it's just a moment that that is very funny. And, and I mean, in the context of the Tyrell Corp, she has that humor to throw off, you know, suspicions that she's a replicant. But in the world of Blade Runner of the Heart, for Deckard, like that is a really human moment. And and again, a human moment in a context where there aren't really supposed to be human moments by design. But of course, it's happening in the grand room of the Tyrell Corporation. So I'm assuming that, you know, rules are a little bit different in there. Uh, yeah, the, and I, I just think it really speaks to the economy of the filmmaking that we don't get that, you know, like, well, it's not working. I don't think she's a Blade Runner. Try again. You know, we don't get that back and forth because the movie just treats us like we're intelligent. And instead, what we get with that sequence is really what feels like a dream. I always feel like that's very yes. hallucinatory. yes right with the with the slow dissolve fades and with the slow motion shots and just like it's a very surreal also of course the way it's lit that it's suffused with golden light mm -hmm. the fact that everything else in the movie i mean 
basically every other moment in the film is either in rain or with some kind of smog, um, you know, or just something dark, at least talking about the final cut of the movie. Uh, that's a moment where just everything is different. You're like, you're floating above the clouds. You're in this beautiful quasi Egyptian room and witnessing this like burgeoning love happening over the same test that we just saw earlier in the movie was so menacing and frightful. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, it's a real testament to, I guess, to the filmmaking that they are able to pull that off. But I guess, uh, do you want to transition to the baseline since you're teared it up? But before we do, I just, I think, the VK tests, as we discussed disarming in our last AI episode, I don't, hopefully you guys have heard that. Um, but in terms of producing technology that disarms you to disarm you. And we were talking about that. We were talking about that in relation to Ash in relation to Bishop, um, about things that disarm us to make it, make us feel at ease. So then we can be disarmed. And I feel like the bla- the VK test is the same thing. Like, oh, no, it's just a few questions. Not a big deal. Um, and even I've been watching this series. Uh, or no, it wasn't a series. It was a documentary on Chris Watts, the man who killed his pregnant wife oh, yeah. and his two American daughters. monster. Yeah, I mean, it was just horrible. But there's yeah. they show the whole scene of him going into this room or in this room and this woman comes up yeah she's and she's administering the polygraph yeah and she's like oh yeah. yeah kind of laughing with him joking with him oh yeah whatever i know you wouldn't even be here if you if you're gonna lie you know disarming him uh, making him feel at ease um which you just know that they're tactics and then of course he fails the polygraph test um but it reminded me again of the vk so much where you're being disarmed to be disarmed. And I, I think that machine, I, it's, it's the strange thing. Cause I think about why you would, why would you need to come up with a machine like that? Well, fundamentally, well, of course, you know why you need to find out who's a replicant and who isn't why, because are they in society? What's going on? Have they gotten out of control? Has something gone awry? Okay, so you need to figure that out. So, which means you're rounding up people and giving them these VK tests. So, in that sense, it makes sense. Um, but at the same time, they are checking to see if the, their own technology is their technology, you know, or the people in front of them is their technology or is are they actual people. So, we are responsible for the mess that we've created to create these things to then dehumanize you or and let you go or dehumanize you and kill you. Um, and that's, I can't really get around that as cool as it looks. And it does look cool. It's very, to your point, it's very, um, uh, what'd you say? Uh, steampunk. Dehumanizing? It's, no. A oh, steampunk. The yeah. actual VK tells, test itself. It's very, um, steampunk. It's very cyberpunk too. It's got that aesthetic going on for it. Where with even though cyberpunk is more, uh, your body is being adapted. You're, you're adapting cybernetics to your body. The VK is a little bit different than that, but it's using cybernetics in a way to find out who you are. Um, and it's a fascinating, very cool and terrifying piece of equipment. Yeah, I agree. And I guess just in closing out this, this segment of the show, um, it, it does say a lot about the society that they function in, that empathy is the dividing line. And that's something that I'm still kind of hung up on, because I guess the reason why they wouldn't have allowed earlier Nexus models to be empathetic is so they wouldn't be sensitive to the plight of their fellow replicants, I'm assuming, right? So they wouldn't organize. Um, 
so that's just another kind of subversive fucked up thing that but again the movie like what i what i love about blade runner there's many things but one of them is that the movie never says that it never like spells that out to us it, there's never two people walking down a hallway you know and bryant turning and, and being like well the point of this is actually blah, blah 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 because if they are empathetic then they might realize what situation they're in because they'll see others in that situation and go oh that's me too and i'm in trouble like any movie made nowadays that you know nine out of ten would do that and and blade runner just gives us these incredible grace periods as an audience just to play catch up. And that's why we can have conversations about it. Because if we had these answers in the movie, like it wouldn't be fun to talk about. We could talk about the moral implications of it. But like a lot of this is just us living with this film and figuring it out and thinking about why it exists the way it does. And it's like endlessly interesting to think about. And, uh, and also endlessly horrifying to consider like why empathy was, was the dividing line. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. is it. Yeah, it's, it's certainly when when humanity becomes its most terrifying, it's because it's lost its empathy. And so, what do they then make? They make a a version of humanity without empathy. It's just a strange, strange thing. Like, well, we need something without an empathy to get the work done, right? But then, what are you creating? What do you morally, not for them, but for you, what's happening here with you? Um, where you're kind of like, okay, we're, we're going to take this out. We're going to take that out. Um, and even, I, and I know we're talking about, we're about to transition to the baseline, but I even think like, it's so strange, I, the VK and the baseline, but like, I think about pleasure models. And so they make these pleasure models. Are they empathetic? You would think they would probably have to be to provide a really good experience for their client or whoever or their companion or whatever role they're playing in whatever world they're on. Um, so are they then forced to take the VK test or the baseline test? I'm sure they are. Um, so what's that like? Because if you're going to develop a pleasure model, fundamentally it has to be something that's very different than a Blade Runner model where the Blade Runner models need to be cold and calculating and uh uh, have, you know, high focus in, in terms of their thought processes, get the job done, go home, not think too much and be done for the day. Whereas with pleasure models, it's like, it's very different. It's like, how do they pull their client into a, a more sexual experience into a more satisfying experience. How do they do that? They should engage their humanity. Um, but then conversely, the terrifying part is that is of that is, you might, they might have a client that just doesn't give a shit and brutalizes them. Um, but then circling them and in the middle of them are these tests. It's just, it's just morally so ambiguous. And it also leads to this whole other conversation. That, this is why I always want to divide this episode up into two, because I, I feel like we could easily do a full hour on the, on the VK test, but we will be disciplined and move on from it. But Empathy is such a fascinating indicator, and it by looking at through this movie, and by looking at this movie through the lens of empathy, we learn all of these interesting things about the characters and why they're functioning the way they are. So, for example, what first reads as a bloodthirsty, you know, mutinous uh, mentality from Leon shooting Holden, and then of course from Batty, you know, 
gouging the eyes out of his creator like the those replicants are they don't have empathy like we see leon fail a baseline test they are nexus six models who do not have empathy so all of that that they're doing doesn't matter to them not because they're evil and not because they're vengeful even but because they are sociopaths because they don't understand and that's not a judgment on their character just like there are plenty of sociopaths in society who are actually just completely well adjusted because they've learned how to integrate with other people you know and this is a i don't want to be controversial uh, at all so if i do come across controversial coming off but you know it also makes me think about autism and how it's a spectrum of you know people who have varying degrees of difficulty in interpersonal communication with other people which can sometimes read in some cases uh, as a lack of empathy I'm not saying that's necessarily what it For is themselves but that's kind of too. the stigma yeah, around yeah. it but yeah and it, it, it have people you know and certain parts of the autism spectrum can have a harder time yes engaging with other people yeah um, they're not evil by any means. I have autistic friends. I know you do too. Like there's there. I would never in a yeah, million years characterize them, them yeah. as that. Yeah. Right. Um, I, and you know, they are, and my friends are wonderful people that I adore and I love and, and that I know would, would, you know, uh, jump in front of a moving car of it meant, you know, saving me from it. That is something that has been a significantly bigger hurdle for them, I think, to get over, at least speaking personally with my experience with my friends, because I don't think that their brain goes there automatically. They, they've learned to kind of adapt. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, the replicants are such an interesting window into that because they haven't had time to figure that out, you know? Like, I like to think that if Batty had a 75 or 85-year lifespan, lived like people live, that he would have had time to develop empathy. I, I, I feel like that's almost inevitable. I, I feel like from, you know, the way that he mourns the loss of Pris to the, the reverence that he has for life, I feel like he would have put those pieces together himself and come away from it more fully, quote unquote, human because he had empathy. But he only has a few years. Like he only has this toddler length experience on the planet. And I don't know how many toddlers you've met. I know you've met a few. I have met, met plenty of my time. <laughs> uh, empathy is not like the first thing that comes to mind when I think of a two or a three year old, right? Yeah, it's just pure, um, uh, it's, it's almost animalistic. They're almost yeah. pure instinct. Yeah, and there's of course moments of tremendous empathy, but, oh, yeah. but by and large they, they don't realize you know if they throw a toy that it's really going to hurt you very much, you know. Um, and so it's just interesting because we're watching basically a bunch of uh, ba little children in the bodies of adults who are have governors in them to keep them from feeling empathetic for others, and of course it leads to the downfall of most people in the film. And it's unfortunate because it's one that could have been averted if they had just treated replicants as beings with agency and rights from the beginning. And that's what they didn't do. And that's what's so messed up about it is that like all this shit could have been averted had they just not villainized and otherized replicants and hunted them down willfully, you know, and, and completely cornered them off. Like, but then again, then you're that, that's the thing, though, is that then what I'm saying is just creating people, right? Like yeah. if you if you create, quote unquote, technology that looks exactly like us and functions exactly like us and has our lifespans and our empathy and our same faults and hang ups and insecurities and rights also, then like you're that's a person. So 
again, like th- that's the interesting moral quandary that we get into with this stuff is like it makes kind of sense in a fucked up way, too. Yeah. Keyword that you just said is rights. And I was thinking as you were talking, if you make the like if they would have approached replicants as a more humanely, what does that mean for their overhead? That means, oh, fuck, they have rights. Now we got to. Oh, now we got to take care of them. Oh, so this replicant needs this care and they got to do blah, 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 blah. Oh, so then there's this other infrastructure that they have to build to care for them. Um, They don't want to do that. So they removed, it's humans removing our, our own empathy to make these things without empathy. That's, again, here's the same thing in play where, okay, we, we need these things to do a job. Um, But, we're going to approach them without empathy and we're going to need them to pro- approach their work without empathy as well. It's just strange. But again, to your point, if they approach it with empathy and they're like, okay, we need these people to do all these things and go off world and do this and do that. Well then why don't you just have people do it? Um, because that, that infrastructure is already there. So they're, they needed to develop something that could work like people, but not actually be people. Um, I mean, and it also reminds me of what people used to say about um, Rachel in terms of even like fans in groups would say like, she's a washing machine, which was really cool. I mean, a couple of years back, um, I remember being engaged with some of the people in our group fields of Kalantha on Facebook, if you guys are interested. And some of the people responding were like, oh, she's a washing machine. Who cares? And I was just like shocked, shocked at that lack of empathy from them that they don't see her as maybe they don't even have to see her as a woman but can't you look at her and see someone who is in distress someone who is in pain um and we'll get into maybe the validity of whether rachel's in pain or not as as it relates to joy i mean we don't know she acts in pain but that doesn't mean it's not programmed in it could be i don't i don't really even know um but you create this race of, of, of beings um, and a way to identify them. Um, and we can move on to the baseline test. And it gets even, I think the baseline test is even more insidious, way more insidious than the VK. The VK is just saying, are you a replicant or are you not? And they're not going to necessarily kill you um, unless you're on Earth. Um, which, of course, that means that's the end of the line for you. But the baseline test is, are you operating the way that you're supposed to when we bought you? And if you're not, you're going to be a liability. So it was always testing. Are you, are you, do they have lack of empathy? Are they performing their job? How, how, I mean, the questions that go off in the VK test, you know, um, do you ever, what is it? Uh, how does it feel finger to finger? What's the whole thing? How does it feel to hold this, the hand of someone you love finger to finger interlinked? Yeah. 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 Uh, and you know, when you're home, do they keep you in a little box? Uh, stuff like cells. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then that, that mantra that they keep, he keeps repeating. And I know based on what we've read in, uh, the art, the art and soul of blade runner, each blade runner or each replicant, whatever might have their own mantra. And that's the mantra K chose, but the questions that are being asked by the machine. And we assume someone's behind the machine talking to him. We don't know for sure if that's the case, Um, but it's making it's, it's, it's being even more calculated than the VK machine. It's diving into like 
the minutia of his response, not just the minutia of his response, but what's going on in his brain, what's going on in his like emotional sphere, monitoring it. Where are you? Where are they? Are they okay? Are they a liability? What do we need to do if they are? Um, and I think like I, I've worked for corporations in my life and I have had questionnaires from them. How do you feel? How do you feel like things are going? You know, how can we do better? How can you do better? What, what do you offer? You know, and, or a list, even as you're employed, a list of questions in terms of finding out where your mental and emotional state is at that place in your journey in that company. Um, of course, the effects or the consequences of my of those answers won't be as dire as of, in terms of death. But what it does tell them is maybe this person's going to speak up at some point. Maybe this person here um, isn't doing so well psychologically and they need help. Maybe this person here is a little bit too rude. So we need to track them. So they send notes to the managers or whatever. So we are definitely living in a time where that baseline machine is even more real now than the VK machine is. So with that, uh, we are going to table this for part two. And we're not doing that because we are lazy. We're doing it because we actually are realizing that we have more to talk about with the baseline than we anticipated. And we don't want to rush it to fit into one giant episode. So we're going to keep this as the Voikonf. We're going to be back in two weeks with a discussion on the baseline test. And before then, what Jamie and I would really love is if you could write to us with your thoughts, both on the VK, but also on the baseline. So we can try to integrate some of that into this episode, because I think that when you look at the baseline test vis-a-vis the Voight-Kampf test, you see a lot of things, not just about the world of 2049, but a lot of things about the ways that replicants are treated in a world post-blackout and post-stripping of even more rights with where there are even more behavioral regulators in place, why the baseline test is what they go with and why K uses the Nabokov text and all these different things. Uh, so, yeah, so we'll be back and we'll go into the Art and Soul of Blade Runner a little bit with Tanya LaPointe's incredible background research on that. Um, and we'll be back. But before we close this out today, I do want to fulfill my promise uh, about reading patrons' names. So uh, bear with me. If you're not actually, if you're not a patron and you're going, oh, I'm just going to skip to the end of this. Uh, if you go to bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support and you join at $4 or more, not only do you get access to an incredible amount of content that we are putting out twice a month, at least twice a month, sometimes three times a month, but you also will get your name on this list. So next time I read it, you might not want to skip because you'll be like, oh, wait, wait, where is it? Oh, he mispronounced that one too, but it's okay because I did my best. So without further ado, uh, here are our amazing patrons. Thank you to each and every one of you. A.T. Johnston, Alexander Gates, Ben Rush, Ben Wardinsky, Brendan Vandenay, Brooke Nestor, Burke Burnett, Carla Rosa, Chase Kupo, Christian Matska, Christopher Egan, CL11B, Craig Wright, Dan Arnott, Daniele Ferlito, Daniel Purpletree, Darren Gold, Dave Joyce, Dave Turner, David Benson, David Holmes. We have a lot of Davids on this list now. Uh, Devin Q. Jordan Patinode, Dom, Doug Freechen, Douglas McNaught, Dwayne Namor King, Duncan Scragmore Lewis, Erica Ferlito, Eric Gordon, Forrest McKnight, Fred in the Clouds, Gene McDonald, Greg Bromley, Jackie Childers, James Wills, Jason Ald, Jason Judah, Jason Struess, John Martino, John Ransom, Jonas Holmston, Jordacious, Joseph Rosner, Josh Cambrian, 
Julian Casey, Ken S, Kevin, Kevin, the separate Kevin, only one name, Kitey, Lee D, Madge Potatoes, Marcus, Mark Deckard, Matt Bro, Matt Lowe, Michael Scudieri, Mike Dennis, Murray Kuchurawi, Natasha Blockoff, Nathan Gribble, Nick DeBoer, Nigel Carroll, Nolan Eller, Nuccio, Paul Middleton, Perry Chicos, Peter from the Midwest, Philip Pace, Priscilla, Robin Bunce, Rachel Cordy, Reno D, Retronauts Does Adventure Game Episodes, the podcast, Sander Kempen, Sarah Brones, Shantanu Thakur, Stephen Bischoff, Steve Appleman, Stuart Fowether, Tharmine Thurian, Tim Hazeldean, Tim Lawson, Xander House, and Zorglum Gluten. Thank you to all of you. Uh, Zorglum, yes. I think you have a, uh, I think you are pretty firmly rooted as the last name on this list. Unless somebody else has a Z with something after O in the alphabet, Zorglum Gluten is going to have this for the foreseeable future. Thank you to everybody. Yes, thank you so much. And um, we hope you join us again for part two of this as we discuss the baseline test. And see you next time. See you then. Bye, everybody. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.